0: Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 143. So glad you could join me. Sorry for the delayed start. Um, I went to log into Zoom to meet with Chris Anderson, today's poet. And um, I had changed my Google, upgraded our Google account to um, to a nonprofit account. And um, apparently that makes your Zoom login change, and I couldn't get to the old stuff. So I had to make a whole new Zoom, and then I had to get connected with Chris again. All my fault. I should have thought of that before, but I, uh, I didn't. So here we are. So glad you could join me. It's going to be a wonderful show today. Today's guest is Chris Anderson, like I mentioned. He'll be here in about 10 minutes. Um, and um, just one of my favorite poets. I'm really excited for this, uh, this episode. But first, we're going to take a look at today's poem. Uh, there's two Poets Respond poems I want to share to kick off the show. Um, neither of the two poets that we're publishing could be here today for different reasons. Um, today's poet, Gene Procott is uh, is traveling and so couldn't make it to a computer or phone right now. And then uh, the second poet for Tuesday's poem is in Ukraine and so can't make it right now. But um, we uh, here. this is uh, Neon Shades of Youth. And of course, the, the topic for the week um, that everybody was talking about, in um, most of the poems that were submitted um, was the, the upcoming um, overturning of Roe v. Wade that um, was leaked out of the Supreme Court on Tuesday, I think it was. And uh, the poem of the day today is one of those ones that, um, I, don't know, it's, it, I, I love this poem because it felt like it was sort of listening in on conversations in a poetic way. You got to sort of feel the discussion going on um, and everybody's feelings about it um, through this poem this is a Jean Procott, and I'll read her note really quickly. This is uh this is what Jean had to say. Um, I wasn't sure how to write about the leaked opinion to overturn Roe v. Wade. There's too much to say, so I put it off. But when I heard my students talk about their fears and their fortune futures so openly and passionately, I realized I needed to blend their words with my own. So a lot of these comments from the poem it's a, it's a sort of a stitching together or braiding of, of comments that she heard in her class discussions about this. And uh, here's Jean Procott reading uh, Neon Shades of Youth.
1: Neon Shades of Youth, with lines from my high school students' conversations after the Roe v. Wade SCOTUS leak. It's not ovulation, it's ovulation. I am a young woman in America. This is my neon youth. There is a man in a black coat at the back of the dark alley, And I fear I am only waiting, my turn. You cannot build a human from my organs after I die. A man's body, seminal vesicles like a tiny brain behind his bladder. No one has ever taken his straight cis white rights. A woman's heartbeat as red as a wax seal hides a letter they won't let us read. Where does the egg go? Are we shells, or are we roots, or are we buildings, or are we torches?
0: And once again, that was Jean Procott with uh, Neon Shades of Youth. And, and just the way that that sort of stitches in um, different, different things into, into poetic lines was a really beautiful way to put everything that's going on right now, I think. Um, the other poem for this week, which is going to be Tuesday's featured poem, this is a translation of a Ukrainian poet, Walls Trembling like Horses by Dmitry um, Bliznyuk. And, uh, the translator is, um, Sergei Gerasimov and, um, and, uh, Dmitry writes here, um, Dmitry writes, um, I am in Kharkov, uh, which has been bombed and shelled by Russian troops for 75 days in a row. Here, I try to survive and write poetry. That's what Dmitry says. And then this is his poem, um, which is going to be Tuesday's featured poem, um, walls trembling like horses and I'll read it for you. Walls trembling like horses, the sounds grow. They are the teeth of a vehemently rotating circular saw. And the bomber folds the sky like a book, cuts the sky in two. And you, seized with terror, shrivel up into I, into we, like into a lifeboat sent by God. But you are too big to squeeze in. Quickly and rudely, you cover your mom with your body. Your stunned guardian angel blindly thumps its wings against the linoleum like an albatross on the deck. Where are you? Are you still here? Still alive? My dear people, the sky bursts with explosions. The sky gets filled with pink manganese solution. The oblong eyes of the beast of the horizon. It's the trepanation of the despairing city with pneumatic picks. The walls of your house tremble like horses that caught the smell of a wolf. And once again, it's Walls Trembling Like Horses, um, a poem from Ukraine by Dmitry Blizniak. So, hope you enjoy that one. Very powerful poem. That's going to be Tuesday's featured poem on rattle.com. Um, now, we're going to go to a quick break, get everything set up, and we'll be here in just a moment with uh, Chris Anderson, today's guest. So, hang on, hang tight. We're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Like I mentioned, uh, today's guest is Chris Anderson, um, a wonderful poet. Chris Anderson was the featured interviewee in our Poets of Faith issue um, in rattle number 45. He's a recently retired professor of English at Oregon State University, a poet, a retreat leader, and a Catholic deacon. He's the author, co-author, or editor of over a dozen books, including books of literary criticism, textbooks, a book of essays, a memoir, and two books of poetry. His most recent book, Light When It Comes, is a mixture of homilies and poems. Um, his weekly homilies often include poetry and are available by email subscription on his website, which is DeaconChrisAnderson.com, which I just love. I encourage everybody to sign up. It's really cool to get poetry and, and wisdom like that through the mail every, every Sunday. It's a, it's a really nice thing to sign up for. So go to Chris, or DeaconChrisAnderson.com to sign up for that. Uh, but here he is, Chris Anderson. Hey, Chris, how you doing? Pretty good. Nice to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you again. It's been a, it's been a while. I can't remember yeah. when... We had a reading that we did with you years and years ago. I can't remember exactly how many, but it was a while. So it's it's been some time. And also... You know, I have to say, um, you haven't set any submissions in for a while. So I started to wonder, I have this worry that um, a lot of my favorite poets kind of get bored with the poetry world and stop writing poetry. And I was starting to worry that, um, that maybe you'd focus more on the, on the homilies and things that you do through your website that way and um, had, had, weren't writing. And, and, but you tell me that you, you took a, a bit of a break um, after retiring and are getting right back at it now, huh?
2: Yeah, I took, a, I took a sabbatical from sending things out. It was just too frustrating. I was getting too wrapped up in it. So I spent a couple of years just writing uh, for myself and going through. I have a big archive of poems, and I was going through them. And it was a real experience of uh, freedom. And uh, and by the end of it, I was, I was ready to start getting out there again. So I'm sending out again.
0: Yeah, yeah. well, it's great to see that you are. Uh, do you want to start out with a poem? Uh, what, what did you want to read first? Was it um, the, From the Next Thing Always Belongs? Yeah, I wanted to read a poem from uh, from a book that's already
2: unbelievably 11 years old. Uh, and this is uh, a poem that you published in Rattle uh, under a different title. Um, and that's about the only thing I changed about this poem. Uh, as you know, uh, from recent experience with me, I can be an obsessive reviser, <laughs> uh, But this is a poem that came out more or less uh, in this form, uh, except for the title. Move Over, Darling. I have to admit that sometimes I don't care about the historical Jesus, one way or the other. I've always thought there were other forces at work, too. The sun and the wind, the sadness that comes in the late afternoon. Did you know that our bones are only 10 years old? No matter how old we are, it's always the same. Something to do with the cells, I guess, with regeneration. There are miracles like this all over the place, in everybody's bloodstream, and that's all right with me. Doris Day was once marooned on an island with another man. Years went by, and her husband, James Garner, was about to marry another woman, Polly Bergen. But then Doris came back and sang a lullaby to her kids and tucked them into bed, and they didn't even know who she was. I think life is just like that. Sometimes we are the rock and the spirit is the river. Sometimes we are the mountain and the spirit is the rain.
3: And
0: that that was Move Over Darling um, from this wonderful book, which is actually one of the last books I blurbed. Um, I stopped doing it only because... um, you know, people kept asking and I couldn't keep up. And I, when I started having to turn people down, I just couldn't do it anymore. But, um, but I love this book. Um, and that poem was published as uh, Living the Chemical Life in right. Rattle. Um, And I am always curious, I never asked you, what was it that made you want to change that? And, and why did you change it to uh, the title it has now? Well, it's,
2: that's the title of the movie that mm-hmm. uh, Doris Day, uh, that I talk about, the reference to Doris Day. And it, I don't know, it just somehow seemed, I don't know, it just somehow seemed like the right title.
0: Yeah, it was a strange title. I mean, I remember um, why was the title "Living the Chemical Life" originally? I that's the thing. It was one of those poems that, like, the title made made me always you know ponder and, and say, like, why was it called that? It's an interesting title. Well, I just I just liked the phrase. I just thought it was interesting. And so, in a way, I was I
2: was I was trying to talk about how God is present in our everyday life and uh, in the things that happen to us, sort of physically in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I thought, well, living the chemical life sort of implies drug use or something. I guess that's the other reason that I decided that I would. But 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 my original idea was, well, first I just like the sound of it. There are a lot of things about this poem I didn't fully understand. They just came out that, like, why did Doris Day appear in this? Um, so you know, I was sort of in that in that that uh, uh, jumbling things up mode, uh, and then I thought, no, that's that's because I want to sort of talk about how how embodied things are.
3: Mm-hmm
0: yeah yeah that that poem is just a great example of of what i love about your work was it it, it, it it's free to take leaps and And move through places and and free, like you said, you didn't know what you were doing with the poem, and, and you were just mixing things and combining things and um but there's a sense of deeper meaning all the time um buried beneath it. Um, can you talk about that about what your your style of poetry what you're drawn to and why you take those leaps, which is what just makes your poem so alive to me is that the the leaps of imagination, and you never know where you 're going Doris tail appear out of nowhere, for example.
2: Well, I I appreciate that. This is an example of that that kind of poem, a a leapy, jumpy, even jokey poem, although I hope in a serious way. And um, I guess I I write this kind of poem partly because that's just how our minds work or how the images work. There is that kind of um, free association that goes on, I think, whenever we write. And sometimes we revise it out. But when I think back to what what I think the effect of it is, um, um, I think meaning is always between the lines, even in a poem that's not jumping, mm-hmm. and um, that sort of things don't quite make sense in the spiritual life or in any kind of life, and yet they sort of do, that things are connected, and that when we uh, sort of let them all be there, there's this sense of uh, something implicit that cannot be fully articulated. And part of this, too, I know a lot of poets are doing this lately as I have noticed when I've been going through my archive this last couple of years, I, I, write a lot. I write sort of daily and I put things in files. I pull some things out or keep them and start revising or working on them, or some of them just kind of click into place. But a lot of them I put aside and as I've been going through the archive, I've realized how are my new poems too, how often I talk about movies um, or television shows uh, or I've got a, a long poem about WKRP in Cincinnati that I'm not sure anybody would understand unless they knew that TV show, uh, song lyrics, uh, and so on. And so part of it is there's 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 a way to write Christian poetry or poetry of faith that is sort of reducing the spiritual to the ordinary. And I don't want to do that exactly. I want to kind of go the other way. I want to sort of resist that dualism and say, yeah, Doris Day is one of the ways that the spirit works, I think. So that that's kind of the effect of it. But when I'm writing it, or when I think about it afterwards, um, you know, that leap just was there. Why was Doris Day? It was sort of opaque to me why she showed up, except I just written a biography or read a biography of Doris Day. Mm-hmm. She fascinates me. But then I thought, well, she it's a Mother's Day poem, by the way. And by the way, after that Ukrainian poem, my a poem from Ukraine, oh my God, what a powerful poem. And it's hard not for me to think my poems are a little um, thin or <laughs> I think you know that or or, or a little, isn't that the problem for all of us right now in the face of everything that's going on?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Not that you need to write a political poem or, you know, write about it exactly, because I think any poem is a way of resisting brutality and violence and and and, and oppression, even if it's about Doris Day. Uh, but still there's a sense that Doris Day was the mother um, that the children didn't know. Mm-hmm. And the way that I think the spirit is working again i 'm not thinking this when i 'm writing, but the spirit works in ways that you know sort of indirectly
0: um, so you know you 're unusual in that you 're a Catholic deacon and a poet um, you 're the only one I know um, <laughs> and, and so um, can you explain how that came to be and and what is a Catholic deacon because I you know it 's not a hierarchy I know I think I, as far as my conception of it it 's like it 's one below a priest, so there 's some rites you do that a priest doesn 't and right. kind of so how how did that come to be? How did you become a deacon? And, and how does that relate to poetry more, you know, more to the point? Well, that's a good question. Um, a deacon um, has certain faculties
2: that a, that a priest has. We can hatch, match, and dispatch, baptize, marry, and bury. Uh, we also preach. We serve at, uh, we have certain prayers that are part of the mass, but we do not consecrate the bread and wine. So that's one of the main things that the priest does. Um, and uh, we can't... Um, Uh, do what's called the anointing of the sick, the last rites. But we have a lot of the same sacramental functions. Uh, Deacons can be married men. It's an ancient order. Um, You can read it in the New Testament or uh, in the early church documents. How I was called to be a deacon is um, uh, just over the years, uh, I was, you know, attracted to the contemplative life and, uh, and, and to prayer life and so on. And it started to write about those things. And at one point, um, we were, uh, going to a, a monastery, um, in Oregon called Mount Angel. And, uh, I just started to fall in love with the idea of being a deacon. It just was kind of a sense of falling in love. Um, and I was a little guilty about it to tell you the truth. um, But gradually, um, there was just this sense that there was something missing in my life and that there was something um, uh, that I was being called to do, pulled to do. And the way poetry relates to it is that when I started becoming a deacon, when I was in the process of becoming a deacon, uh, I had to go back to seminary. I I, I had to go to seminary and and study. And during um, a fundamental theology class, I just started writing poems. They just flowed out of me. Oh, wow. I hadn't written poems for quite a while, although that's my first love. And there was something about the freedom I felt as a deacon that led me to to write poems. So how 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 is being a poet and being a deacon related for me? I don't think I can be a poet without being a deacon. Otherwise, the poetry just disappears. It's you know, or it's all just about the poetry business. Or or but but being a uh, a deacon gives me a sense of poetry as prayer. Poetry is meaningful even if nobody ever reads it. And it's the other way around. Um, There are lots of different ways to enter into a religious community and lots of different ways to experience God. And for uh, me and for lots of others, I think for all poets of faith, it's the sense that we can enter into that sacred space through image, through the poetic, through what can't be explained. Um, And so uh, that's so I think of liturgy as as poetry. Mm-hmm. Uh, i think all of this as sort of encountering the mystery uh in and in a way the poetry and music and art um do
0: yeah i mean that makes perfect sense because to me poetry is prayer that's what that's how it's always felt to me um it's is a non you know i don't i'm not a church going person um i'm i wouldn't call myself a christian um but poetry is a form of prayer that that you, you know, it's a ritual that you do every day and you're speaking to the universe, to to God, um, and and trying to make sense of your life and your place within it. And that's what poets are doing. Um and and, and a lot of poets do write every day like you would pray every day. Um and, and it's a kind of practice that that enriches yeah. life and 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 provides you know, so many of the things that that religions do. Um, so, so I think that's a great example. Um, you, you mentioned that, um, you felt guilty for being a deacon. Why, why is that? <laughs> well, it's partly because
2: one of my sisters-in-law said, you want to be a deacon? We need a no- We need more men, ordained men. Deacons are ordained mm-hmm. and we wear fancy outfits and so on. And part of what you have to deal with when you're in the Catholic church is patriarchy. It's not the only place where you have to deal with patriarchy, but it's one of the places. Mm-hmm. And, uh, just also the, uh, the sense that I wasn't uh, worthy to be a deacon, which is a common feeling. I mean, if you think you are worthy to be a deacon or priest, you probably shouldn't be.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and 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 partly because I'm not a joiner, oddly enough, um, I, I I tend to want to stay out of uh, groups and institutions and organizations. So that's not guilt so much as wait. What am I? Why am I doing this? What is this? Mm-hmm. It didn't quite quite make sense. But it was the guilt. I, I don't know. It's just. In some ways, that's that's I, again. I think if you're trying to discern the will of God or the movement of the Spirit for you, you have to sort of discern well what's pulling you, but also what's holding you back. Mm-hmm. And and I started to identify that guilt as maybe um, something not to listen to.
0: Yeah, that, that's interesting because again, I can relate to that just through poetry because I I was a science major, and mm-hmm. I love poetry in English and reading. You know, and a and I. Uh, but I felt too like like why should I write and why should I think what what I'm doing matters and, and why how is poetry more valuable than you know finding an mRNA vaccine or something you know and All it was right. a struggle to to uh, come to terms with that and finally let it go um, and um, so I, I kind of feel similar there. Uh, let's hear another poem. Um, okay. I think let's hear one from uh, "You'll Never Know." I think is the next the
2: next. Yeah, poem. this is a book that was published in 2018. You never know, and this is an example of the other kind of poem that I tend to write. Um, a, a narrative poem, uh, where I just, I, I try to tell a story. Of course, lots of my poems are sort of in between. Um, but but sometimes things happen, and I just want to honor them. They're these powerful experiences, and I just want to honor them. Uh, and a lot of those experiences uh, come out of my ministry as a deacon. You know, these amazing things happen. And uh, this is a poem that I thought of, uh, I guess, in the context of Ukraine and all the Children who are suffering, not just in Ukraine, but you know, Sudan, Afghanistan, all over the world, even in our own, you know, own communities. And one of the, um, I don't know, it's 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 a gift in a way. It's a terrible gift, but I I get to experience the, this as a deacon. And so the, I don't know if it's entirely clear from this poem, but uh, and I don't exa- I don't remember the how this happened, but there was a woman with a four month old baby. And she was either on the way back from the hospital when the baby died in her arms, or she she was on the way back or she was going to the hospital. And for some reason, she appeared at the funeral home. And she they, she walked in with sisters and others. And she was holding that baby and she wouldn't let the baby go. She wouldn't let it go. And, and I got called to come down there. And, and this is what I walked into. This is a more explicit poem. One of the complicated things for me, in a way, and another way not, is how, um, how usually my poems are pretty restrained when it comes to faith. Um, in some ways, I wish they could be a little less restrained, um, but this one um, is less restrained. This is, in a way, the most one of the most explicit poems about uh, faith. So it's called How Warm They Were. The mother was holding the baby in her arms, and she was rocking back and forth and she was wailing. The sound of it came in waves, rising and falling. And I came into that room, and I said the words, and they were beautiful words, and they rose and fell too. They had a rhythm and a force. And I think after a while, they started to calm and center the people in the room, as I said them into the dark air. But mostly what I felt was helpless, was powerless, and I was helpless. I was powerless. It was the words that mattered, and what was deeper than the words, I could feel it. I wasn't thinking about myself at all. For a moment, I was caught up with the mother, and the father, and all the aunts who were wailing, and the grandmothers, and the grandfathers, and all the people in the world in that terrible, beautiful darkness. Let the children come to me, Jesus said. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And he was there in the darkness. Jesus was there. I can't explain it. At the end, as I made the sign of the cross on the baby's forehead, as I touched her cold, lifeless skin, I could feel the tears of the mother falling on the back of my hand. How warm they were, almost scalding,
0: yeah, that was how warm they were, a powerful poem from uh, from chris 's second book, you never know, which is right here um, and and that 's something I wanted to talk about chris is is this these um, the responsibilities of being a deacon i mean it 's such a valuable service, um, and it 's one of those things that sort of exposes what we don 't at all, like just can 't get right about capitalism in our society now. Um, You know, as as our society becomes more secular, there's no way to, like, monetize those really important functions that, you know, teaching people and being with people through those hard times. Like, you can go to a funeral home and have the funeral director who's been experienced death talk to you, well trying to sell you the most expensive coffin, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. um, and it's just such a valuable thing. And the, the church provides that, but we have no other way of getting it. I mean, we can get it sometimes through poetry or sometimes through, you know, friends and things, but there's no organized way of people who have been through that. Um. So, so how? I mean, what is your your experience like? Like, how often do you do these kind of things, and and how deep is that need? Because it seems just huge to me. Like, even just our our cat died a few weeks ago, and mm-hmm. then we had a um, a um, you know, the euthanasia was done in home with somebody who just does that and who knows, right. you know, who's used to being with people as they lose their pets, and just that the comfort that they could provide is such a valuable thing. Um, but it, it's not something that our society does very well anymore.
2: Well, I, I, I have blessed uh, dogs and cats too, as they were dying or after uh, they've died, their blessings. One of the things that's good about being Catholic is that there are all these prayers. I mean, when I walked in those the, in this situation, I wasn't saying my own words. I was saying the words of the right, which are poems. I mean, the prayers are, are poems and, the, and there's there's a rhythm to it. And even people who are not religious, I often get called into situations where the people are not practicing Catholic or they just need something and a priest is not available
4: mm-hmm.
2: um, because the priests are there's a real shortage of priests so deacons kind of fill in the gaps and so I come and I'll read these prayers these poems and people don't know that that's what they're longing for but they are that's yeah. what they want it changes the air in the room in some way Um so that's you know sort of the rhythm of the words or the or the rhythm of the um psalms how, how often do I do this I I have four funerals that I'm doing next week. Wow! This this week, this last week, I did a house blessing, a baptism, uh, two hospital visits, um, served at uh, mass uh, last night, the vigil mass. I also do spiritual direction. Um, I have a number of people I meet with once a month. So I have two or three people a week that I talk to for about an hour or listen to for about an hour. So, um, it fluctuates. I don't make any money speaking of commodifying. Deacons do not get paid. Um, which is an issue in a way in the church too is who can afford to do this? Well, retired people or academics i did I've been a deacon i I taught for thirty eight years thirty four of them in Oregon State. I've been a deacon for twenty four years. I retired two years ago, so there's about twenty years or more where I was doing both. Um, and that was hard to balance actually, you know, there were these two lives, but it it's, uh, then it was more kind of, it would go in bursts. I'd have a lot of deaconing stuff like every six weeks, I'll, I'll preach at all the masses, I'll preach at five masses or three masses. Um, but since I retired and now that COVID has kind of lifted, it seems as if, um, I'm doing, um, you know, there's always, you know, one or two things, um, a day that I'm being asked to do, and uh, yeah, and where else do they get it? Um, yeah, I, 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 I think people are longing for what uh, traditional religion can offer. Traditional religion is not the only thing, as you said. Literature can offer. Um, there's so much junk. There's so much cheapening. There's so much sort of avoiding of death, ignoring of death. Um, but they, they are a longing for for something. Mm-hmm. And, and I love going into those situations and I love how, like in this experience, it's not about me. It's not about me coming in and saying, you know, profound literary things. It's language that that means something, um, means something in the moment. It, you know, it, it, w- w- what effect does prayer have in general? If, if I'm praying for Ukraine right now, what difference does that make to Ukraine? I mean, that's the big choice. It's like, what difference does a poem make?
4: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, uh, Teilhard de Chardin, a a 20th century French Jesuit and mystic and scientist, he said that the spiritual success of the universe depends on the release of every possible energy in it. Mm -hmm. And that somehow or other, um, the effect of a poem or the words of a rite or of a prayer have some kind of invisible effect um, on the world, all evidence to the contrary. (laughs) I I sort of wandered in that answer, but uh, yeah, I do this a lot and I love doing it and I love doing it for free. That also means that if I'm not paid, I'm not on staff and I don't have to go to staff meetings. And having taught for 38 years, I've been in enough meetings to
0: last me a long time, forever. So, so what is it, just to follow up on that a little bit, because you touched on this, but, uh, but what is it about language itself? Like in this poem, you mentioned that it's the words that matter. Yeah. And what is it about language that draws us and um, in, in, in that we value so much in those situations and others? Like why, why language and not, not something else? I mean, what is it about yeah. special words that are special? That's really interesting.
2: Of course, it could be music too. That's something we haven't talked about. And in, in this situation, there wasn't music because it was. Although there was the sound, I have never heard keening before like that. So part of it was just the rhythm of the words, not not their content. That's part of it. Um, but part of it, one of the things about um, this is just within the Christian tradition now, is that it's something the King James Bible captured back in the seventeenth century. We have new translations now better ones, although some people have said it's the bland leading the bland. These translations are a little watered down, but it's this sense of simplicity. You know, the Lord is my shepherd, or um, there was once a sower, you know, very simple language, but it becomes majestic because it's in this rhythmic pattern. A lot of it with and, you know, and God said, the uh, made the light and the light was good and 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 and. And um, and I think there's something about hearing like like in the rosary. In the rosary, there's a little bit, there's very much the quality of a mantra. Hail Mary full of grace, you do it if you pray a rosary 50 times. You know, there's 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 a way in which the word has a mantra-like effect. Um, and then and then I think if we if we think about content, if we get to the point of content, like at a mass where you might actually hear the words that are being read aloud. Um this seems too easy, but I think it's really true. Um, the language of the Gospels and the language of Scripture is fundamentally poetic. Um, and I think there's, uh, in that simplicity of language, people can hear something and feel something they can't quite put into words. Another little footnote on this the word parable um, in uh, the, uh, the Greek for parable is parabolo, to throw together or to juxtapose which I think is really interesting. And and that's a form in the Old Testament, a genre, and that's also uh, Jesus was a parable teller, teller. storyteller. But there's a wonderful definition of parable by a a New Testament scholar named C.H. Dodd. He says a parable uses ordinary language, but it leaves us in sufficient doubt about what the language means that it teases us into thought. And that's what I think if we're away from these ritual situations, and it's not just language, then it's ritual, it's gestures, it's touching, it's embodied, it's living the chemical life, I guess. Um, um, but when we're in this in this content situation, I think it's that they leave us, you'd you think that language is all about faith, and it is in a way, but it's about what can't be put into words. Hmm it leaves us in sufficient doubt it, um, uh, about what they mean that we we think we're, or, or we feel.
0: Yeah, yeah, I love that expression, that leaving sufficient doubt to tease out understanding. Is that, um, I mean, that's just what poetry does. I mean, that's just yeah. a great, great way to put that. Um, I think I was looking through the poems to see if we'd have more that, that touch on your work as a deacon. I don't think we do. So let me ask this question now, even though I want to yeah. get to more poems. Um, sure. Somebody was asking about... Um, um just the confidentiality cuz a lot of your poems do yeah. like we have that wonderful poem the I love that um blessing the the bathroom poem that you, that yeah. you do years um yeah. so so what is um you know how do you deal with that of telling people's stories which is a, such an important part of what you write um really is it, but there's a confidentiality aspect where um I don't know how do you neg- how do you navigate that problem
2: well essentially i'm going to read a poem the one i've revised 20 29 times uh, one of the reasons I've revised that so much is the confidentiality
4: issue
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, sometimes I change the names or the gender or the location um, I do that when I preach too. part of what I part of what uh, I like to do is tell t- what I've heard and seen uh, in you know among people um, and you know in my ex- experiences with them um, uh and then um, sometimes I, I make it personal. I will, particularly if it's about something that people are not proud of. I, I don't tell stories. So-and-so did a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the good things they did or the struggles. If it's something involving, I don't know, temptation, I will put it in my own terms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or I will, I will take an image that I don't think is too... I, I will take a story that I don't think is, is embarrassing and I will just go ahead and use it um, without worrying about confidentiality, but I probably should. And sometimes I ask for permission.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And the the problem with the poem that I revised so much <laughs> is uh, maybe I'll read that next, um, is that I didn't ask permission. Mm-hmm. And Barb, my wife wants me to change the names. And I I just, and I, I should, if I ever publish it, I should. Um, but I just love those names.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And one of, the, one of the people that's dead that I wrote about, they're probably never going to read a book of poetry. So in other words, I don't handle it very well <laughs> in some way. Uh-huh. You know? Um, uh, yeah, I, and I do ask permission when I can. But a lot of times I don't. I wrote a poem that's in The Next Thing Always Belongs. Somebody told me a story about their mother. And the brother of the person who told me the story wrote me an email and said, "Is that about my mother?"
3: Hmm.
2: And I would not asked permission from the brother either. From the and he was ha- he was glad.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So it's 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 tricky. It's really it tricky, yeah, and yet so I want to honor them. You know, and the language that, they, they they give me this wonderful language. I mean, they say things that are really powerful, or do things that are really powerful
0: yeah it's something that we do too with with poet respond that comes up a lot that you know someone will write a poem about um you know a, a child who died um and you know it's a newspaper article story that that you know has been in the news and and we, we i won't even think about the parents of the family having you know finding the poem like what are the odds that they but they always do and yeah. um, and every time that's happened, they've been like grateful and, and I've gotten really great messages about the poems we've published about things like that. But but yeah. it's strange how somehow the universe always finds, you know, the people always find it somehow.
2: Yeah. Uh, In if if I, can fact, I, can I read that poem now? Yeah, let's do that. Um, um, it's called Double Wide. This is, uh, I, I told you, I, re, I retired and then for a couple of years, I just worked through my archive and wrote new poems and pulled things out. And this is um, another narrative poem that's drawn from my experience as a deacon. It's a it's a it's a relatively new poem, and I think one of the reasons I've revised it so much is uh, to try to honor them. And I'm worried um, I'm worried that it will seem condescending to the people involved, or that you know there's 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 an, uh, there's an approach to writing about faith that I've fallen into too. Where you say I'm a Christian, but I'm a smart Christian. I'm not like those poor people in the pews. You know, I didn't vote for Trump. I'm a Christian, but, um, and uh, you know, I'm 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 mystical. I'm you know, watch me be sensitive and watch you know, watch me be be sort of. I don't know, more profound than the ordinary person. And my experience has been just the opposite, not just the opposite, but my experience has been to come into contact with all kinds of people whose faith um, is in some ways simple, but, but simple in a profound sense. Anyway, this is called Double Wide. Dorothy and Jean's Double Wide was weathered and worn. And when I walked in, it felt like home. Jean was glad to see me smiling through his ruined teeth the coffee pot sputtered on the cluttered countertop the night before he left a message on my phone that he was so lonesome for dorothy he thought he might blow his friggin brains out but the thing about short-term memory loss is that every day starts anew i'll never forget the day i married them that sweet old widow, and that lonely, battered man. Dorothy wore a simple print dress, Jean a straw cowboy hat with a feather in the band. We were standing by the tabernacle in the front of church, and taking Dorothy's hand and looking into her her eyes, he said haltingly, Ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no valley low enough, ain't no river wide enough. Um, so even though it seems from the poem that Dorothy is the one who died, mm-hmm. uh, actually she survived, she was in a terrible car accident. Jean is the one who died mm-hmm. a couple years later. So I worry that if Dorothy read this, she would think that I was um, making fun of Gene and making fun of them. And I kept writing an ending after this. I kept adding an ending because I wanted to make it clear. In fact, in one of the endings, which I had realized was um, too obvious, I I said, I'm not making fun of Gene. (laughs) I loved him, but... um, yeah, and, I, and I, I still think if I leave this, I still think there's a missing beat here. And yet, on the other hand, well, without the without the extra stanza there, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how these two things fit together, but maybe they do. The point is, is that he actually did this during the wedding ceremony, and I wasn't ready for it. He just started to say this, mm-hmm. and he had fallen off a ladder ten years before, and he stuttered, and he, he had some kind of mental problems. So it it it, it and I thought, well, this is ridiculous. And yet, then I realized it wasn't. It was profound. Hmm. Um, Or there's this cheap shot, maybe, but the thing about short-term memory loss is that every day starts anew. You know, he left a message on my phone that he was going to kill himself. I didn't get it till the next morning. That's part of the struggle writing this poem, too, is how much do I explain? Mm -hmm. And, And so I hurry over there, and he's just happy as can
0: be.
3: Yeah.
2: And so um, so th- the issue of confidentiality is very much on my mind here. Um, and it's also the issue of I've revised this so much. This it, this event happened maybe five, six years ago. Am I telling the truth? I mean, even are his teeth, were his teeth really ruined? They were stained. But somehow the sound is good. Mm-hmm. At one point I, I put crooked, but they weren't really crooked. I've just been trying to remember what his teeth really looked like, and then, did he really wear a straw cowboy hat with a feather in the band? Yeah, I think so, but I've written it so many times.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So it's 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 tricky. What I what I want this this relates to how much you explain too in a poem. Th- this, these two experiences with Gene were religious experiences for me. God was pres- I believe mm-hmm. what happened there was sacred, and I named that with the language of my tradition. But whenever I tried to name it directly, <laughs> the poem just, you know, but if I don't, I, I, I mean, I, I'm, this
0: was a profound experience and I want to honor it. Yeah. Well, I read, you know, cause you kept sending me revisions. So I read several <laughs> and, um, and honestly reading that, maybe it was partly hearing you read, but, but I thought the end, I mean, I, I almost teared up. Like it was hard, you know, at the end to, to hold back that emotion. And I'm not even sure where it comes from either. That was a great poem. And, um, and so I think it works. Um, you know, I I think ending this way is a really good way to end it. And, um, yeah. Thank you. Um, so let's see, let's hear another poem. I think we're kind of uh, talking a lot and not getting through enough poems. Okay. Uh, Okay, Well, let me, let me back up.
2: I wanted to talk about something real quickly and it's related to this. Um, I wanted to touch on a prose book of mine because it's really kind of a poetry book in disguise um, it's, it's the book light when it comes, uh, it's a book I did for Erdman's and Erdman's is a Christian trade press. So it was partly an experience of trying to actually sell books and, uh, which I think it's possible to do, um, and still write well, um, I haven't figured out how to do it, but I had a really good editor and, um, it's, it's these collage essays and the collages are 10 of them and they're, uh, the collages are uh, made up of pieces of my homilies but also pieces of my poems with the line breaks taken out. Hmm. And, uh, and that's, I couldn't do that with all of my poems, but I I have a fairly plain style. Uh, I write in a fairly conversational way. And I do it when I write my homilies, I love the literary form of the homily. I, I, I love writing homilies, but I write to, to be, to speak. I write for the oral delivery and, um, and, and with some of my poems, it just fits naturally. I wonder, what does it mean about my poems that I can take several of them and just, you know, lots of them and just turn them into, uh, there are a whole bunch of the rattle poems that are in there, like just kind of disguised. Anyway, here, this is from the preface. And I just want to show you these three short paragraphs because each of these paragraphs is a poem that I just took the line breaks out of. Hmm. So the shock of stars at 5 a.m., the bright belt of Orion and the arc and sweep of those other brilliant nameless lights and even the blackness glittering, the smell of wood smoke and fur, the cold, damp air. I hear the voice of my wife calling from another room. Do you know where I put my book? Standing at the sink, rinsing out a bowl, I look up and see a strand of a spider web rising and falling, made visible by the wind then another and another looping from the willow to the roof, glinting on and off as if all the shingles and boards of the house are secretly bound with thread. So I I just wanted to touch on this quickly. I learned a lot writing this book and, and after I wrote it, all I wanted to do was write poems.
4: Hmm.
2: Um, But it's, it's interesting here to me that, that the Shaka starts at 5 a.m., that's the first stanza of a poem. I hear heard, hear the voice of my wife, that's the last line of another poem. And then the third um, paragraph is a, uh, a short poem, uh, I think, with only a few words changed. Mm-hmm. And then what I do, what's interesting is that, it, it, for me, again, in terms of what to say and what not to say, in the difference between poetry and preaching, um, or poetry and, and, and the essay, is that you can see, I, do, are seeing? Are people seeing this yeah, at all? Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. So there's a, you see, I go on and I start to talk about it. I comment on it. I explain. And that's what you don't do in a poem. Or mm-hmm. at least you don't do very much. Um, I'm interested in poets who can do that. Sort of come out and say things like Wendell Berry is mm-hmm. one of my heroes. He can do that in a way, although sometimes he seems preachy, but I, I like what he's saying, but the, 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 the The interesting thing about this book is that my editor kept encouraging me not to preach very often.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And what I'm preaching in those is I'm, I'm saying, look, God speaks to us through these moments. God speaks to us poetically.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And so the short poetic moments in ways we can't. In fact, the idea of parable, you know, teases us into thought, well, these are just all these little parables. So I'm sort of saying, hey, look, we can't we can't understand this. And, 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 and God just comes to us in these, in these small, uh, ordinary and yet somehow mysterious ways. So, so I, I, you know, it's sort of, um, the, the book is kind of performing its arguments. So that's, that's just a quick look. And I put a lot of poems in there hidden that I hadn't been able to, that had been published, uh, in, in journals, but hadn't been in, in, in any book.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I'm sort of wondering about that, you know, um,
0: those poems kind of got lost I'd rather write poems is what it comes down to um, I, I wanted to ask about this about your experience with combining poetry in for general audiences you know because yeah. they're part of your homilies um, you know that that newsletter that you do every Sunday um, yeah. you know is, is full of poems and, mm-hmm. and and how do how do readers react to that or your audience how do your audience react to that yeah is, is I'm it...
2: very interested in that because people have been a lot more responsive to the poems than I thought hmm I wouldn't put "Move Over, Darling" in my newsletter. I wouldn't share that. Uh, I do I do retreats, and I use a lot of poems in retreats, not my own, but I'll use uh, Wendell Berry, Ted Kooser, Jane Kenyon. Uh, there's a wonderful Welsh poet, R.S. Thomas, not Dylan Thomas, R.S. Thomas. Um, I probably wouldn't use Jack Gilbert. I probably was wouldn't, one of my probably my very favorite poet. I wouldn't use Tony Hoagland, mm-hmm. um, another one of my very favorite poets. Um, but what what I've uh, Mary Oliver. Uh, I know there's controversy about Mary Oliver. I love Mary Oliver, um, and she's very widely read. And I think people are, i said this before, are hungry for poetry. And I've been surprised at people who respond to poetry. I just did a retreat recently about a month ago and used a lot of poetry, and people really respond. You just have to use somewhat more accessible poems.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and But they don't have to have religious um you know, explicitly religious content either. Uh, So I've been surprised and encouraged. Um, I have some poems in a file that I call uh, homiletic poems that are much more explicitly preachy. And I've been posting those. I don't know if you've noticed one was called Gratitude. And so I've been kind of experimenting with that. You know, can I write, you know, who's my audience? Mm -hmm.
0: Is it Dorothy or is it Tim? Or is there a difference between you? yeah that's the thing that i just I, I just wonder about and want to get at too is that it it just seemed like there shouldn't be a difference like I mean you know you can talk to anybody and they have amazing things to say they have really great insights, but somehow there's sort of the sense of being afraid of poetry which is all over the place yes, that right. that there's something about um you know how heightening things to being special um is sort of frightening in a way yeah. that I think people resist. And so I'm wondering if maybe the context that you're delivering it because you're coming from a religious place, you're already in that space. So you have more yeah. permission yeah. or, um, or do we just not give people enough benefit of the doubt and maybe we should present things that are complicated and, and let them, let them both. be, you know? So yeah, I never both. know how, you know, how to balance that and, and how, how it all fits together. I don't either. I, w- I, one of the things I've been doing for a number of years, that came, came out of my teaching as a writing teacher
2: I never taught poetry um, is, but in my, in my retreats, I have people free write about 10 minutes each session. And in the last session, I have them go through an underline about five lines from their free writing and pull them out and make them into poems. Mm-hmm. And it is amazing sometimes uh, what comes out. And even if the poems are terrible from a poetic standpoint, the people really che- they're surprised. I did this with a group of deacons. Now, now I'm his confidentiality uh, from Reno, the diocese of Reno, man, what a difficult group. I had one guy just get up and walk out, but because um, I was doing this touch of feely stuff. But by the end, I stuck with it. And it was amazing what those what those guys produced, you know, these cowboy boot wearing <laughs> Reno uh, you know, ex-police chief. Um, so yeah, I think just like we 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 sort of under, underestimate spiritual, you know, the spirituality of these ordinary people even people with cowboy hats, you know, have poetry in their souls. You just have to sneak up on them with it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean that's the thing. I think we all do. I think we all have poetry in our souls. I think we evolved to do this and we all have a spiritual component whether yeah. you know, however it's manifesting itself and and we all have, you know, we live in a world of language too. And so it's all comes together. I think for everybody and just how to how to make, you know, I mean, it just comes back to the thing of like how do, you know, it, it's clear what people are missing, you know? Yeah. But how do you get it to work is always a difficult thing. Yeah. Um, but I want to make sure we get through a good number of poems. So let's do okay. like two more poems before we talk okay. anymore. Okay. So
2: um, uh, one of the things I've done in this break is I read a terrific book, a fabulous book by Terence Hayes, American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassins. Mm-hmm. What an astonishing book. And one of the things I loved about it is this idea of the American sonnet, which I didn't really know about. I mean, he's not the first to write them. It's kind of informal sonnets. And I just fell in love with that form. They're not rhymed to pentameter, uh, which I don't think I'm capable of doing. They're just really a friend of mine calls them uh, 14 liners. And, uh, but I just fell in love with that form because I tend to write in the neighborhood of 14 lines. I write long poems, but my, my shorter poems tend to be 14 lines. And I loved, I want to share with this poem when Barb brings shy to sunrise. Um, uh, because I I like this kind of broadly Shakespearean uh, shape, um, which seems a little pretentious in a way. It's like sort of a broken Shakespearean sonnet or a free verse Shakespearean sonnet, just because I like those for some reason. I don't always do this, but I mean, I literally wrote hundreds of these things because I just love the form. There's something about it, about the break you have to make in the second or third stanza anyway. um, And this is also an example of how language, my wife is named Barb, And she has a little dog named Shy. And she reads at elementary schools with Shy. And one of the elementary schools is called Sunrise. And so I said, well, when Barb goes, when Barb brings Shy to Sunrise, I just said that. It's the language of of ordinary speech. And then down below, I'm going to quote somebody. And I have permission to quote her. Um, And that is how you spell her name. Um, And she said something. And I thought, oh, my God. So anyway, this is when... Bar brings Shai to Sunrise. When Bar brings Shai to Sunrise to read with the kids, it's like she's bringing communion. They open their books and Shy lies on his side and they reach out to touch his warm black fur. It's not about words. Shai has a body, part terrier, part chihuahua, with bright brown eyes and little orange feet. He weighs nine pounds, six ounces this is what people don't understand about who God really is. Last Sunday at mass, when Diane brought the large ciborium full of hosts from the tabernacle to the altar, as she stood there holding the body of Christ, her arms began to shake. It felt so heavy. Like the dead weight. She told me of a sleeping child. Um, With these sonnets, very often I write knowing how I want to end. I mean, when she said this to me, I've been thinking about shy and sunrise. And when she said this to me, it went. I knew those two things went together. And I was going to try to write towards the ending.
4: Mm
3: -hmm.
2: I'm not trying to reduce the Eucharist to a dog. I I mean, I'm sincere about this. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, the connection, which I didn't fully see until I started writing it down, is that shy is about the size of a sleeping child and then dead weight of a sleeping child. Um, the ciborium is like a large bowl or container and the tabernacle is where we store in the ciborium, all the leftover sacrament at the end of a mass. And then during the next mass, we bring it forward. So that's another issue for me as a Catholic poet is I'm not writing to persuade people that that's the body of Christ. I'm right. You know, if you're a cowboy poet or a nurse, I love the way you publish poems from librarians and, you know, whoever you are, um, you're going to write out of your own experience. Well, this is my experience. Plus, I love the word saborium
3: mm-hmm. and
2: I love the word tabernacle. And, you know, that actually happens. So that's that's one of those sonnets. And uh, here's another one, The Beautiful, The Beautiful River. Um, and It's got that same shape. And this one is a little bit more uh, leapy or an associative. Uh, the Beautiful, The Beautiful River. What does love look like? Tom says he remembers how cool he thought I looked in my 56 Chevy. They only wanted 300 bucks for it, but dad checked it out, and it always ran great. There are different kinds of freedom. There are different kinds of love. There are different ways of saying what we think is true. I could take you right now to the exact spot in the riverbank where they found that car, nose first. The morning after, someone stole it and the river would still be flowing. The beautiful, the beautiful river. Um, So a couple of quick things about this. Um, You know, as a poet of faith, you don't always have to be writing about explicitly poetic things, even though the beautiful river showed up. That's from a gospel, the beautiful, the beautiful river. I mean, a gospel song, a a hymn. Um, And I like this one because it did end up someplace I didn't expect with the river, I didn't I knew I wanted to write about the Chevy and that it was stolen. Tom is my brother in law. Um, He knew I he's quite a bit younger, so he knew me when I was a teenager. And the word love, I don't know why the word love is there exactly. In a way, it doesn't scan. But when I change it to the word fact or truth, the whole poem just contracts. It just loses its life. yeah, I don't I mean, in a way I'm saying, Tom, you don't know what you're talking about. Cause I was a $300 Chevy and it was my dad who told me I should, you know, it was okay. I don't know anything about cars. And then somebody stole it. So in a way it's like deflating, but it's right by the river and it's a beautiful, beautiful river. So that's, you know, what does love look like? I don't know. Maybe it looks like the river. So it, it, there's a little lift at the end, maybe because of the song. And again, it's another song. Yeah.
0: Well, um, if anybody has any questions, I should say for Chris, um, leave them in the chat windows on uh, Facebook and YouTube, or I'll pass them along if I can. Um, I, I, there's something I wanted to talk about, and it's sort of a half-formed sort of thought that, that I was thinking about, just considering your work, um, which is very much trying to understand things, and and, and I, I keep thinking, even though um, you know, you're not Jewish, you're, you're a Christian, but um, but that, that, that Israel, I always think of that how it means struggle with God. Is the yeah, definition um, of that, and, yeah, and how um, you know poets struggle with like life and, and try to come to meaning in the same way, and and there's a sort of a struggle in all of your poems too, of trying to make sense of what you're experiencing and its connection to everything else. Um, you know, the next mm-hmm. thing always belongs is a great title that this sort of exemplifies that, but mm-hmm. um, but 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 how how does that function? How does, and and. and sort of faith too, and, and what faith means, you know, and, and the doubts that that happen as well, and, and mm-hmm. how to how to find what's real. Um, mm-hmm. How does that all tie together for you? Well, I think
2: um, a lot of people um, are not literate about faith or literate about scripture. You know, Karl Marx said that uh, religion is the opiate of the masses, but apparently hadn't read the Psalms. There's a, like two thirds of the Psalms are Psalms of Lament. You know, Psalm twenty-two, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Um, you know, and the Gospels. I mean, you know, at the you know at the end they kill him. I mean, it's 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 part of the. It's deep in the tradition. It's deep in the scriptures that this is a matter of struggle and doubt and of entering darkness. You know, there's a caricature of faith out there. And sometimes it's within different traditions. Uh, it's, it's inside of it, but it's also in the way it's represented. So I think a mature faith or a, you know, St. Augustine said, of course, we don't know what we're talking about. If we knew what we were talking about, we wouldn't be talking about God. Or there's a contemporary theologian, um, David Tracy, a Catholic theologian, who says, all valid theology proclaims its intrinsic inadequacy. And so, uh, you know, it's hard when we're surrounded by caricatures of faith or uh, when as Christians or Jews, we don't sort of practice our faith, <laughs> that it's not about uh, somebody else wrote, you know, what, what the angels announced above the stable in Bethlehem was not a topic for conversation. So, you know, that you're encountering um, a life, you're living a life. So how, how I reconcile it is, first of all, by immersing myself in the tradition and reading all these other people there's a notion in the spiritual life of consolation which is a sign of the presence of god but there's also a notion of desolation that desolation or the dark night of the soul or dryness or emptiness that's part of the spiritual tradition um and that's 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 something you have to experience um so it's not a matter you know a matter of kind of walking around with a fatuous grin in your face all the time so that's one of the ways I handle it is by just drawing on the tradition. But the other way I handle it is inside of my poems. I'm always struggling with the same thing everybody is. God, I wish I could believe more. I wish I could really believe that God was speaking to me, um, you know, through a Doris Day movie. I mean, I say that, you know, the, what you write, in, obviously the voice in a poem, the, you're, 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 it's a character. I mean, it's me, but it's a version of me that is much more detached and zen than I really am. Um, you know, I say, well, wait a minute, this is really God. And then I'm in my own in this room here where I pray. And I'm, you know, I'm just thinking, oh, God, where are you? And I'm totally deceived. And what's going on here? Or how do I say this? Or, you know, am I getting this right? Or what's happening? Um, So uh, it's my own experience of this and the tradition and the scriptures and all of this sort of, as you say, it's uh, Jacob's name has changed to Israel, which he wrestles with God. And I think that's the true nature of it. So when I'm wrestling, when I'm doubting, another quote, Pope Francis says, anybody who is, who is certain uh, is not, how does he put it? Uncertainty is a necessary part of faith. Anybody who is really certain does not have Christ in him hmm so so then that the challenge too is how to deal with people whose faith is much simpler like gene was a and the, the guy talk, he was a QAnon guy you know mm-hmm. it, and yet you don't read them literally i mean the, the people who are fundamentalist or literalist you, you 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 can't read them literally there's fear there you know there's doubt there there's longing there and to try to try to get to that and then occasionally you run across a person who's been given the gift of faith, deep and profound in simple faith. And you, and you're, you, you're, you, you experience it, and you think, man, that's the real thing
0: yeah it's interesting i you know th- just thinking about that, thinking about we were doing uh trust falls with my son, and um you know he turned around and said isn't it easy you know it's much easier this way if I can see here there <laughs> and there's a way though that that you, you know if you know if you can see what's there and don't have doubt it's not faith because you you know you know what's going to happen and that, that yeah that makes a lot of sense um so we have two more poems. Do you mind, do you have to run anywhere or do you have a little bit no, more time? I, I don't, yeah, I know. Okay, I um, yeah, so I want to get to both these poems. Let's do one poem and then I'll take a couple of questions from the audience and then the last poem. Okay, um, okay. So this is, a, this is a poem that
2: doesn't have any particular religious context at all. You know, when, you, when you're a poet of faith, you write about what comes to you, just like if you're a poet of doubt or a poet of anything, you're just, okay. So this is called Tilt-A-Whirl. This was a sonnet, but I, not everything could be three quatrains and a couplet, I discovered. There are 15 lines in this poem, which for like three weeks just bugged the hell out of me. But I just, I could, whenever I made the last three lines into two, it just didn't work anyway. Maybe now that I'm retired, I've got too much time in my hands. Tilt-a-whore. I'm down on all fours on a paved path just beyond the Benton County Fairgrounds. Who knew how dizzy a dad can get? I have a picture of Maggie when she was a little girl riding in a kitty car. She is slowly going around and around. She is smiling the smile. I was always afraid, concealed her disappointment. But we are older now. And we've just been on the tilt of whirl and everything is spinning. Please, no, I tell the deputy sheriff, I'm okay is if that long smooth path were the only way
0: i'd ever make it home That was tilt-a-whirl another new poem from chris just real real
2: quickly my my daughter is 37 38 now but in the poem she's 10 or 12 and then in the poem i'm thinking back to when she's 5 or 6 and there's a, there's a way this could be a comic poem right i wrote on the tilt-a-whirl and i'm trying not to throw up and I'm on all fours and I hear a voice, and it's the deputy sheriff who thinks I'm drunk and uh, or at least wants to know if I need any help. and I didn't want the sheriff to move me. I don't want to move at all <laughs> um, and then um let
0: me see this is the last poem. Did you well, say me, just one poem uh, yeah, and let then... me uh, let me ask uh, pass on some questions here. So Dick Westheimer asks if you're familiar with Robert Alter's exploration of the art of biblical Poetry.
2: Oh my God! Yes, I am. And yeah, so, uh, lo- do
0: you find your poetry responding to that poetics? And that's something I know nothing about. So maybe you can explain what. Yeah, Robert. About.
2: One of the things I did for years at Oregon State was teach a course called "The Bible as Literature." Every big state university, you know, like 150 students. I loved that, um, and he sort of was a um, the 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 leader of or the father of the latest generation of biblical scholarship in the field of the Bible as literature. And he has a translation of the Book of Genesis that I—he's I, translated uh, the Psalms, he's translated um, the whole Pentateuch, uh, and the stories of David too. But I use this translation of the Book of Genesis, and he's just wonderful. And he talks about uh, that the style is the is is the argument, and this goes back before Alter too. He's very interested in patterns, and and he has the advantage of actually knowing the ancient languages. Um, he's a Hebrew scholar in the poetry of the languages, uh, of the, the poetry of the words in Hebrew um, uh, and so on, and patterns and, and all of that. But he also talks about how the, 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 the minimalism, the spareness of Hebrew poetry and of Hebrew narrative is part of the point that God cannot be named, that in the, in the Jewish tradition, you don't name uh, God directly. Uh, you don't say the name of god you there's a sub you know there's a displacement for it and um you say adonai or something else and um um, so there's the way in which the 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 poetics and and, uh, and and the narrative structures are um sort of embodying uh the idea and one final i mean i could talk about Alter forever i got to meet him once he's a really nice guy He's just one of my heroes. But one of the things, for example, he says in Hebrew narrative is that everything that's happening in a novel, in a chapter, or three chapters, is happening in one line. So when um, Jacob says, yeah, first sell me your birthright, sometimes the first thing a character says is indicative of the whole character. And uh, the first thing that Esau says is give me some of their red, red stuff. And so he's you know sort of an Arnold Schwarzenegger character before he was governor, and and Jacob is more I don't know a, somebody else you know smart and scheming and so on. So that you you begin to see that the scriptures are not just uh, flat, but there, there's a whole lot going on. So yeah, I, I yeah I know about Robert Alter and about half my class was stolen from him.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, when I took a literature of the Bible, we talked, I think it was, um, you know, I was in college at the beginning of the internet. And so we talked about how the Bible was like the first hypertext with links between, um, you oh, know, between yeah, one section and the other was how, you know, how my professor there, Kenneth Gross at the University of Rochester put it. And, um, it was fantastic. yeah, yeah. I, I loved that class too. and And that's kind of something I wanted to Just somehow the Bible has so much literature in it. And 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 it's it's somehow like we learn literature from that in a way. Um and and I wonder do do more we talked about this with uh, Janice Harrington a couple episodes ago because um you know she she got her love of poetry through going to church and hearing hearing the scripture read in that poetic rhythmic way yeah um and so she talked about that, and I'm just wondering you know as people become you know less church attending um you know over the years um if if that's maybe one of the reasons why we're having less poetry in our lives because we don't have we don't aren't learning that year for literature through that regular um regular presence at a, at a you know sunday service um yeah, do, yeah. Do you think find, that- find yeah so so my question is do you find the parishioners are sort of more um, open to poetry because they have that experience with literature through through the Bible.
2: Yes and no. I mean, there was a Pew, y- yes, but also no. There was, there was a Pew um, survey done uh, from the Pew Foundation asking college teachers if we thought the Bible, English teachers, if we thought the Bible should be taught in high school so that students would better understand literary references. And I said it's the other way around, uh, that we should teach uh, literature so that people can understand the Bible. And so I think part of what happens, uh, uh, there's a natural, even within Catholicism, a tradition that doesn't encourage literal reading. There's a tendency to be looking for the message to boil it down to one meaning. And I think it's because people, a lot of people, good, faithful people, um, have not read any literature. And so they approach the biblical text uh, as if it is uh, giving us a message instead of, Yeah, uh, uh, giving us an experience. They don't understand that. I mean, for example, there's the idea of genre, right? Different kinds of language. There's a wonderful book, um, by a Catholic scholar called, and God said what, and it's about the idea of genre Mm -hmm. and that, uh, not everything in the Bible was intended to be read as history. A lot of it was intended to be read as short story or, um, uh, fable, or 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 comic story, or um, uh, parable, or other things, and I think a lot of people just don't know that they immediately assume that the only genre that is valid is because of science. I mean, we live in this culture, this age that is so conditioned by science that when people approach the scripture, they don't have those those um, experiences of how language can work in different ways. Language can do something else than hit you over the head. You know, language can do um, something else besides telling you you're going to hell. Hmm. And you uh, oh, know, by the way, that there are contexts for that. There, it, it's complicated, and that's part of the love of it. But um, there's this, there's this uh, understandable longing for answers. And I just don't think that's how Scripture works. But I do think it works the other way. Oh. The people get steeped in in Scripture. It does influence them, even. You know, kind of working against this other tendency. So I, I think I think it's both, but 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 I really really think that one of the I mean, if 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 you think you can swipe everything, you know, you can't swipe God, and you can't summon him whenever you want to, and you can't figure it out in two or three seconds. Hmm. Um, and and I think there's a desire for people to do that, and I think there are a lot of Christian writers and Jewish writers and other writers who will give that to you if you want, and on the internet. There are, there are some very very fine writers out there uh, from different religious traditions, but there are plenty who will hand this to you on a platter, or hand this to you in a little meme and say, "Here's what it's about."
0: Hmm. That's really interesting because that's not how I would think of it at all. I mean, you know, the the stories are such, so rich with meaning and, and questioning. I think, you know, finding questions there is what we're meant to do clearly instead of finding answers you know
2: there's a there's a scholar named richard roar who says jesus is asked 183 questions in the bible how many does he answer three (laughs) Uh Uh, but people are looking for answers and the question when jesus walks on water is did he really walk on water did he really calm the storm did he really multiply the fishes and loaves and it's not that the mirror that the miraculous is not a really important issue but um it's just exasperating. I mean, it, 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 there are reasons these stories are being told. You know, what storms are you experiencing in your life? You know, what you know, what needs to be calmed. Um, you know, uh, who's asleep and who isn't, and so on. It's part of the Jewish tradition. This tremendous um, emphasis on multiple readings and on reading between the lines, and so on, of the rabbinic tradition, and it's also part of the Catholic tradition. Up until the late 19th, early 20th century, when, when along with fundamentalism, the church reacted against uh, uh, moderate, what they called moderate, moder- modernism. But you can see why that is, too. There's a way to approach this multiplicity, which say this is meaningless.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: The
2: Biblical studies is sometimes, uh, uh, you know, a way of telling everybody they've been naive. So there's a fear of that and a clinging. You want the Bible to mean something. And so you cling to kind of a literal sense of it.
0: Yeah, I have a friend who went to seminary school, and uh, he he told me about how when you go there, there's this like shock that people experience because they they go there because they have so much faith, and then for the first time are asked to question everything, and a lot of people can't handle it. I guess a lot of people drop out is what he was telling me. Yeah, Um, and it's kind of just it's just surprising to me. So so is it um. How is, has it presented that way in the church? If people go on Sunday, do they hear as if these are the answers or do they hear? Oh more? God. Yes. Oh God. Yes. Yes. I think. And and, and and it's important again, not to condescend
2: towards those people because I, I, I think, yeah, they want the answers. And the danger in Catholicism is that it can turn towards superstition, like, like the rosary. If I pray the rosary 10 times, then, you know, I won't get hit by a truck or something. Um, if I pray the rosary 10 times or say these other prayers or kneel or do all this, you know, there's a way in which it can become uh, superstition. And, but absolutely. I, I, but, but they're looking for answers. But on the other hand, these are people who've experienced loss, experienced uh, um, suffering, are dealing with w- real world problems. Um, you, you don't have to have a PhD to have a deep faith and having a PhD doesn't give you a deep mm-hmm. faith. There's a maturity and a wisdom in a lot of these people that is deeper than those answers. And they know that they know that mm. um, they just can't articulate.
0: it. Yeah. And, and so is what, you know, going back to those, the words, is what the words does giving articulation to the things that they know? Is that kind of right. what we're doing?
2: Yeah, that's right. Just like any, any great literature. Mm-hmm. Sure.
0: Yeah. And what you want to
2: do in a homily is you don't want to explain it. You want to try to open it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one of the things about the Mass that's so interesting. It's the best thing about the Mass is that we don't have to talk to each other. That, you know, I can give communion to somebody who's a Republican, not that there's anything wrong with Republicans. And by the way, not all Catholics and all fundamentalists are, re- are Republicans. Not that there's anything wrong with Republicans necessarily, but I can give. I can give communion to somebody whose political views are abhorrent to me, because we we share something deeper. Mm-hmm. So it's not just words in the, in the in the in the Catholic Mass. It's 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 the Eucharist itself, and in a way, what you do when you receive the host is you're eating the words. Is one of the ideas. Mm-hmm. So it's both. So I think people experience things, uh, in the church, the smells and bells and so on, and the kneeling and standing and all of that. Uh, And again, I think Judaism, I think it's traditional religion that's... um, You know, I wonder if it's different on the East Coast when there are many more... uh, People have many more experiences of traditional religion. Here in the West Coast and in Oregon, students are really, really unchurched. Hmm. And um, uh, Catholicism, Judaism, sort of mainstream Protestantism, not really as well known. Uh, So it may be that uh, in the West... Even but the evangelicals—that's a wide category too, I should say. Um, but but I, I think there's just a natural fallback too for searching for answers. I'm mm-hmm. just repeating myself.
0: Well, uh, well, I think we got to wrap it up. But I love talking to you, Chris. It's always fun. Let's uh, let's do the last poem. Okay, um, uh, and this is a poem that well, it kind of summarizes everything I've been trying to
2: say or not say. Um, and this is one I sent out on my newsletter. This is a poem. That people really responded to. And it just really taught me something. Um, and, it's, and it's a response to what's happening in the world today and so on. Um, uh, there's a Christian writer, a Jesuit, a Catholic writer, who says prayer is a long, loving look at the way things really are. The final, final thing the word and is the most important word in Scripture, it's parataxis. And this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and it was good. You want to sound like the Bible, use a lot of hands. Everything happening. It's not this or that. My roses are blooming, my yellow roses, and a child is dying of hunger or disease or a gunshot or grief. And someone is laughing, and someone is crying, and someone is lifting a cup. A star is exploding, a heart is breaking. The wind is blowing over a desert, over a forest, over the sea. And it is morning and it is evening. And it is the first day and the last. And every moment somewhere, the host is being raised in the air, in the air, in the air. Um, So for me, the big question for all of us is, what do we do and do our little gestures make a difference? And the host, you know, the body of Christ, you raise it up in the air and this is really vulnerable. What difference does it make? Mm-hmm. And and this is the struggle, Tim, for all of us.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It makes every difference in the world. <laughs> or we're totally deceiving ourselves. And, and I don't know. It's this and it's that. You're just holding it up, holding it up, holding it up.
0: hmm yeah. Well, a great, great poem to end on and just a wonderful conversation. Thanks so much for being a guest, Chris. I, I knew it was going to be inspiring and it was. So I appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thanks so much. Okay, yeah, that was Chris Anderson. Um, you know, you can find him at DeaconChrisAnderson.com um, and sign up for that newsletter, which is wonderful. Um, his book's of poetry you never know and the next thing always belongs. Um, which I have uh, both copies right here and, uh, and Light When It Comes, of course Is the uh, book of homilies mixed with poems Which um, Clayton Clark mentioned She picked up a copy on Audible You can buy a copy on Audible And I think probably listen to Chris read it Or, or somebody anyway um, So do pick up a copy of that So we're going to go to uh, a quick break And then we're going to go to open lines So um, pop over to Zoom if you would like to share a poem I'm going to go to a quick break Stand up and stretch Get everything prepared And I will be right back And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Um, I, I forgot to mention, if you'd you um, you know if you'd like to read a poem, join us on the Zoom through those links that I shared, um, and also email your poem to openmic, that's openmic at rattle.com, so we can show uh, the poems on screen as you read them. Let's go to T.R. Paulson. Hey, T.R., how are you doing today? Good, how are you? I'm doing great. So I was thinking about you last night, because I was watching that Kentucky Derby, <laughs> and uh that was an amazing race, wasn't it?
5: Yeah, that's the best race riding I've ever seen by a, by a jockey who's complete like he comes from the backyard racetracks of Ohio. But I mean, the way he maneuvered through <laughs> that field from near last to first, and it just gives me the whole story behind it. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure i i I mean, your inbox is probably going to be just flooded with. Kentucky Derby poems after that just all the different stories behind it
0: and well I don't know you know I'm sure
5: you'll see some of mine but I hope you (laughs) find others besides mine well I don't
0: know we don't get a lot of poems about about horses so um so I'd be surprised if we had any others but um but but it was a fascinating to watch you know I had to watch it twice because you just that guy comes out of nowhere (laughs) it's amazing
5: oh I've watched it over and over and over over and over the whole thing and the the Kentucky Oaks the day before was really good and just an amazing weekend of horse racing. But the poem I want to read today is not about horse racing. Yeah,
0: yeah. So what's this poem about? Confession of a UPS driver. And that's a new verse news, which is, of course, a great website for everybody. I'll put it on screen. Um this is a great website if um you know your poem doesn't send it to us first of course but then um <laughs> if it does, if doesn't make it um you know is one of the poems that I can pick that week um send it to New Verse News because this website is just wonderful um it's Newverse, New Verse New Verse News all one word at blogspot.com and they publish poems about current events been doing it longer than uh, Poet Respond actually by a couple of years so um so yeah so what yeah, is Yeah and he
5: does he does a great job like I mean you know, they're easier to get into because they don't pay, probably. And they publish more, like a couple per day sometimes. But it's really good poems. I'm signed up. You can sign up to, just like with Rattle to receive them in your inbox.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: And so I love waking up to great um, current events poems. I, I I believe Dick Westheimer's been in it. Um, a lo- You know, a lot of good, great poem poets. Yeah, they definitely
0: are. Yeah, it's a good read yeah. all the time. I'm so glad they exist. So And I'm so glad you could um, have a poem there.
5: So mine I actually submit mine was actually a rattle reject last week that I forwarded to News Newverse News. Um and it's about um just the monopolistic way that Amazon is taking over and the way Amazon is trying to own the whole world. Mm-hmm. And it's starting to affect us as UPS. I'm a UPS driver. So it start when it starts coming home to affect you, then it's, you know, you notice you. Things affect you more.
3: Yeah, for sure. (laughs) How
5: to say other Mm -hmm. than through poetry. (laughs) Um, So I'll just read it. Okay. I want to meet the owner of the first bookstore brought down by Amazon. I want to find a bar on a dark street with a strange name tucked in a city I've never visited. I want to meet the bankrupt bookstore owner and make witty conversation only two passionate lovers of books would understand. I'd order wine and tell her I've punched gate codes, delivered books from Amazon to folks off Skyline Boulevard. I'd say I'm sorry. We would joke about Anne Sexton, Dr. Seuss, and obscure heroes, villains. We'd share more wine, poke fun at Hamlet, digress to Joshua, to a hooker named Rahab, who once hung a red ribbon to save herself when foreigners toppled the walls of Jericho. We'd talk about hidden twists and plots and dialogue, hobbled horses lipping grain from hands. We'd tell secrets about who fs whom and for how much money. At 2 a.m. we'd say farewell. I'd pay the tab. I'd mingle, flirt, allow a sleazy drunk to take me home pretend that everything he did to me felt good
0: yeah that was great and i remember that poem from the submissions i love the way the rhymes move through and then you don't rhyme the last couplet which is interesting um what was uh what was behind that
5: that's just felt good what felt good in the moment and you know a lot of what they teach in and poetry workshops is that you can go from not rhyming to all of a sudden rhyming at the end but i thought it worked it was good to work backwards with it. And the way Amazon is destroying things. I, I thought that, you know, I just went with that. And, you know, I know there's a lot of, I mean, Amazon has a 70% accept um, approval rating, which just amazes me how much people love that monster. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure lots of people will read my poem and be offended by it, but.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I just, I thought it worked great. I mean, you know, the, the way that end, it just feels so cut off and like, broken and in, in into representative of the way that the, the, you know, subject matter. I thought it was a great move there.
5: Yeah. Thanks for having us on and, and great, um, great conversation as usual today.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoy it. Thanks for being here, T.R. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Bye. Okay. Let's go next to, um, let's go to um, Nivedita. See how Nivedita is doing today. Hello. Hey, Nevi How are you doing?
6: Hey, Tim. I'm doing great. Thank you. How about you?
0: I'm doing excellent. So uh, what do you have that you would like to share?
6: Um, I tried my hand at a on it. <laughs> I say tried because I think I can make it better, but this is what I have. So I just thought I'll share it for now. <laughs> Very
0: cool. Okay. This is a uh, day versus night. Is there anything you want to say about it or do yeah. you want to just jump right in?
6: No, but you didn't introduce the prompt, so you may want to. Oh,
0: that's right. Yeah, good idea. So the prompt <laughs> the prompt is to write a demi-sonnet, which you have to watch uh, last week's episode, maybe. Or there's a Wikipedia page, but to know what it is, demi means half. So it's a half sonnet. It's a form invented by Erin Murphy. And she actually, I don't know if she's going to be here, she sent a new demi-sonnet that she wrote for the uh, the. The open the lines right now too. Um, but a demi-sonnet, is a, it's a half sonnet, seven lines, and the only real rule is that the last word rhymes. Um, and the rhyme can appear anywhere within the poem. So it's kind of a surprise where the rhyme comes from, uh, which is one of the, the aspects of it that's interesting. And so that's a demi-sonnet, and uh, this is yours, Day vs. Night. Uh, go ahead.
6: Day vs. Night. The dawn chorus, loud and rash, was certainly no Eden, and the twittering cacophony was an assault to my hearing. I wish it was forever the night, so coy and quiet, so I can think and write before the sky turns pink as my mind runs into a tunnel come morn. But night is night, and day is day, and there's no two ways about this. So I guess I'll just have to learn to write a day and sleep at night.
0: (laughs) Very good. I love that. Thanks for sharing that, Debbie.
6: Thank you, Tim. It was lovely talking to you. Have a great Sunday.
0: Yep, you too. Good night. Thank you. Bye-bye. Um, yeah, Nibody DeKarthik with Day versus Night. And um, let me see, we'll admit some more people over here. Ah, Erin Murphy is here. Let's go to Erin Murphy then, since we uh, just mentioned her, if we can, uh, once she can connect. Okay, does that work? <laughs> it does. Hey, Erin, it's good to see you again. Hi. I had, had no idea you'd come, and then I looked at the, uh, at the screen here, and I saw a poem from you, which was really cool. Just, so you yeah. wrote... You you know, I think you uh, probably don't need an explanation of what a demi-sonnet is. <laughs> <All right. laughs> <made it> up.
7: <laughs> well, I just got back from a Mother's Day walk with my daughter, and so I'm, like, terribly hot and sweaty. Um, tempted not to turn on the video, but I decided that would be rude, so you guys can see me in all of my uh, sweatiness. <laughs> but I thought it might be fun to share the first demi-sonnet that I ever wrote. Oh, um, cool. So that was would,
0: about, yeah. About,
7: about 12 years ago, Um So I talked a little bit about this last week on the Rattlecast that I was doing a DIY, um, like, writing residency. And it started with, you know, one seven-line poem and then another and then another. And then before I knew it, I'd written, like, 120 of them. But this was the first one. um, And it didn't have the name Demi Sonnet right away. That came a little later when I realized I was writing in these little uh, sort of half-sonnet forms. Um, But, yeah, so I thought I'd share Word Problem, which then became... The whole collection uh, that came out in 2011 is called uh, Word Problems. It's from WordPress. There's a lot of word involved. Um, So Word Problem. If a vehicle is traveling 55 miles an hour on a 400-mile trip, and a fourth-grade girl with a tear-shaped mole on her left cheek factors in two rest stops and a lunch break on a rickety fishing pier, how many hours will it take her to realize she's an artist, not an idiot? How many years?
0: Oh, that's great. And so let me ask, uh, you know, since you didn't know you were writing this form, was that rhyme of the peer and years accidental? Because that's the essential part of the, the, you know, how you have that buried end rhyme.
7: Right, um, right. No, that was intentional. Um, and then I found myself, you know, writing another one and another one and another one. Um and uh and all of them have that um uh what was different in the original uh series was that i had the first line as the title um for all of them mm-hmm. and then later i went back and and changed it and, came, and gave them their own independent titles um but that was really the only thing that that changed as far as the form Mm-hmm. and the structure
0: oh very cool so, i'm so glad you could share it's fun to see the very first one and then uh, we'll see yeah what i'm excited else to yeah. hear
7: everybody else's so thanks see yeah, you guys Very
0: cool yeah yeah great to see you and, and happy mother's day too by the way thank you bye bye okay yeah that was aaron murphy um the inventor of the demi sonnet let's see what other demi sonnets we have here um let's go to let's go to andrew trudinic i and will
8: go right to aaron Hi Tim
0: Hey Andrew how you doing? I got a pretty dark screen something's in front of it, I think there you go. uh
8: it's my little weird um uh it's got a little hatch thing that switches off
0: I, I sent two, but um, there might not be time for two um I think are they kind of shorter are they yeah, on yeah.
8: well they de- they're demi
0: yeah, oh, yeah, uh, you could do two demi sounds sure
8: and one yeah one one sort of was uh yeah, I mean uh, Completely experimental, but one of them um, turns out to be a bit biblical, so it's kind of like um, fits in with Chris's thing, yeah. Just kind of as the universe is is what to do.
0: Yeah, it's weird how that um, works. That stuff always happens. <laughs> Very uh, yeah. It's no wonder. So people... can I
8: start with my student is tuning?
0: Yeah, yeah, I got it right here
8: which comes, it's inspired by a line from um, one of Erin's poems, My Student is Turning. And um, I'll read a little bit at the bottom um, because her poem resonated totally with the student experience I was having myself in, or, or, right in the midst of. As a teacher, you learn together with students. You lead each other. Erin's poem resonated with me as I'd had a music student who was both inspired by our work together and who had dropped out. He left our high school just last week, but is now coming back next week to play his song in a final concert. We've been learning a song together, um, me accompanying him as you, know, in, as you do. So um, yeah, I'll, I'll read the poem. My student is tuning. And from Aaron's poem, I think of my student, I think of my, I think of what I think is mine, of what is his. My student is turning. I'm a student at this week's Online Poets Conference, and open-mic readers lean in from everywhere. We learn together. Erin reads to us. I'm sitting at a poetry reading beside my student, which has me thinking of my student who dropped out last week. He'd been teaching me his song so we could play together at next week's concert. I wish I could hit rewind, Erin reads. And he's coming back now to play his song, I found out today.
0: Very cool. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Andrew.
8: And Um, that was literally, I found out, you know, like on Friday or whatever. So, yeah. Um, And the other one is a poet went out to sow. Um, Sort of inspired by the parable of the sower, which is said to be a parable about parables. So perhaps sowing seeds is the ultimate metaphor, learning off life.
0: Interesting. Yeah, go ahead. A a poet went out to sow.
8: A poet went out to sow. Behold, a sower went out to sow. From Matthew. The poet went out to sow some seeds, having heard that a sage said that, and thinking, let's give it a go. Now, there weren't any actual seeds because it's a parable, right? But someone said, what's with this seed? Well, you could plant it in see.
0: Excellent. Another great one. Thanks so much for sharing that, Andrew, both of those.
8: So, so two attempts at um, demi-sonnets, and thanks to Aaron.
0: Very good. Yeah, thanks so much. Always happy to have you join.
8: Okay, cheers.
0: Okay, cheers. Um, yeah, that was Andrew Trudinic. And, um, and yeah, let's do um, you know, two short poems or one, you know, if it's longer than a sonnet, just one. But if it's shorter than a sonnet, we can do two today. Um, let's go to Mike Bales.
9: Hello. Uh, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing today, Mike? Uh good. Busy. I've got a workshop due later, so I'm doing this. I'll escape to an art fair for a while. Catch a breath of fresh air, then be be at it again. Um, I wanted to read my poem. So glad you stayed.
0: Okay. Was that? Uh, did you poem. submit
9: that? So glad you stayed.
0: Okay. Let me uh, let me pull it up. So explain. That was a submission, right?
9: Right, is one of the poetry poems they sent. Yeah, so explain what it's about while I pull it up. Well, um, it's something we've got to talk about. I think the COVID thing kind of exasperated it. Um, trouble with suicidal people, and it's a heavy topic, is that they don't have people to listen to. Um, and this is kind of treating in a light message. Um, a teenager lost her soulmate friend, and she... In response to the grief, and I'm sure it was very hard, she started a group. So glad you stayed. I was out of the Des Moines Register, and it's a heavy topic, but if you let people speak, I think um, it's good people survive if you let them speak.
0: Yeah, for, so that's sure. Kind of yeah
9: fun. for sure. A Facebook friend says, too, that she's had her own experiences with a rough life. Says, man, we've got to listen to troubled people. And this is called So Glad You Stayed. Did you have it up or
0: is it the, it starts two soulmates?
9: Yeah, two soulmates. Okay. Yeah, I think you'd change the, yeah. the title, but
0: yeah, yeah, I have it up. Go ahead.
9: Okay. Two soulmates. One dies by suicide. The other talks about it three weeks later on an April day. She says the friend made her safe and strong. The story lives another day of how she couldn't save him. She couldn't reach him on snapshot. Social distance during COVID-19 grew too great. Distant conversations. she says. He had a crisis, a broken soul. Resolutely, she reaches out to others as she must. Something must be said, no one else must die. His voice echoes in the park as others play and others gather on a sunny day to give light to their shadows touched by sadness but a newfound gladness shared a collective voice sounds a chorus a breeze i'm glad you're around
0: yeah a touching poem for a sad story thanks so much for sharing that mike
9: okay thanks for having me
0: yeah always a pleasure all right um let's go next to um jennifer Lee wang hey hey jen how you doing today
10: I'm good. Um, I originally had a it, but then just, you know, with all the news, uh, I decided that I'm going to read my uh, Poetry Spawn poem, which um, I guess I should put content warning that it's not very motherly for Mother's Day uh-huh. and talks about periods. So if that's not your thing,
0: <laughs> be warned. <laughs> well, well, no form. Yeah. Thanks for the warning. but But let's hear it. This is birth, right?
10: Yes. Birth. Okay. I read the news in between baby announcements from two old roommates while I was sitting on the toilet, feeling like I gave birth to a demon. It was just cramps and a clot, cells that could be flushed away, but I'm also reminded of the haunting I experienced from this body that does not feel like my own. You're too young. You will change your mind. Motherhood is sacred, the greatest accomplishment of a woman. I don't even want to be a woman, and I'm old enough to be jailed for trying to take care of an accident or even just having an accident. I could be punished for saving a child's life by giving them what I couldn't have, help stop the metamorphosis before they become haunted by demons that grow in their bodies. In between the congratulations I composed to my old roommates, I think about aborting the girlfriend they knew, the daughter my parents had, and plan for my own birth one day.
0: Yeah, great! Thanks so much for sharing that. A oh, Wonderful poem, yeah, the uh, birth, um, Jennifer Lee Swang.
10: Yeah, and and I just also want to say it was also a response to um, I'm in Texas, so there's just a lot of anti-trans legislation too. So there's been mm-hmm. a lot of feelings around bodies and
0: for sure, what's there been definitely are. Yeah, they're definitely are. I mean, that was what most of the poems submitted were about this week. So yeah, I'm glad to get some of these on the podcast too. Thanks for for joining. Yeah, me. thank you. Okay, let's go to let's go back. I see that I have uh, Emily Peace's uh, poem, so let's go back to Emily Peace. Uh, just unmute and we'll be ready. Okay. Hey, Emily, how are you doing? Um, fine. Glad to see you, Tim. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, what was it that you'd like to share? Well,
11: I, I don't have a demi-sonnet, but um, now I'm challenged to write a lot of them.
0: Yeah, it's this a fun form. It's kind of a poem that, you know, once you get going, it kind of writes to the ending. It's a nice, simple way to do it. I like it.
11: Yeah, this one is not a sonnet, and it needs to be. It's 12 lines, but right now I kind of like it at 12. Um, It's called False Spring. Okay. False Spring. As when the mare feels a foal within and her milk flows, false hope. As when she shifts in her stall, phantom hooves kicking in an imagined trot. As when she's hitched to a plough at dawn begins carving frozen ground, fullless still she imagines spring, as when I heard the word expecting sun so electric, I shielded my eyes, I dreamed many names for weeks. I waited to hear your rushing heart, as when the mare sleeps to the sound of a silent barn.
0: Oh, that's a beautiful poem, and and actually that would work great as a demi sonnet, I think. Um, just find a word that rhymes with barn to sneak in, and then you know make the lines a little longer so it's seven, and that's the exact like trajectory for it. I think that'd be great. Well, cool. thanks. Yeah, but thanks for sharing that. Always a pleasure, Emily. Yeah, was Emily Peace with um, Fall Spring. Let's go to Dick Westheimer. Hey
12: Tim. Hey Dick, how you doing? Good. Um, I think you'd love that Walter, Walter, Robert Alters discussion of uh, poetry in the, in the Jewish Bible.
0: Yeah, I'm going to have to, I mean, I made a note already to check that out. Cause it, it definitely yeah. sounds right up my alley and somehow I've never heard about it. So
12: yeah, I'll, I'll, I've got four or five of his books. I'll send you a, a link to the one that I think got me, got me hooked on his, uh, uh, the way he looks at things. Very
0: cool. Thanks. I appreciate that. Um, so what did you want to read?
12: So um, I do have a demi-sonnet, the demi-sonnet for the dead, but I think I'll read my Prayer of the Blessed Vessels.
0: Okay, I think and... we have time. Neither of them are terribly long. I think you could do both.
12: Okay. Well, uh, the Prayer of the Blessed Vessels, I'd really be interested in folks in the chat telling me whether I have transgressed, because uh, it is a persona poem, basically in the persona of a very angry woman
4: mm-hmm.
12: um and i just i'm just not entirely comfortable with that voice but it's the voice that you know this is the master emissary mm-hmm. this was the emissary not having a choice
0: yeah well i um, mean i mean my opinion is everybody should be able to write about anything and then you know
12: the chips fall where they may but uh that's just me yeah um, so this is a res- uh, prayer of the blessed vessels and it's in response to sort of the aftermath of the release of the um of the uh draft opinion and some of the really sort of heinous things you started seeing such as the mississippi law that will ban uh you know considers a human life as starting at conception which would ban birth control Uh, and I read somewhere where someone talked about women as blessed vessels. Vessels is a popular term, and then there's something at the end about uh, a line in the opinion about the domestic supply of infants.
0: Hmm. And oh, yeah, that was a creepy way. Yeah, to, my, my, my that sort of
12: rage sure. and dismay grew. So, yeah. this is the master telling the emissary just to shut up. So. Uh, <laughs> he, <laughs> So it's Prayer of the Blessed Vessels, a screed on the tentative overturning of Roe v. Wade. Dear God of the goddamn fathers, we, the ones your men have declared blessed vessels, we petition you, call time out on these judging sons of Adam who say society deserves what is up our skirts to gawk To grab to fill us full of what makes them men their greedy hands their manly members their loads of precious fluids their dna their names their claims of all that is inside of us they curse our desires to be anything but what they crave a chalice they can drink all they want from bin for their burning coals, an urn for their spent ashes, a flask for their goddamn drunken rages, which they blame on us, us being sluts, us not being sluts enough, us not understanding how hard it is to be a man when all those other men strut around swinging their dicks in the faces of lesser men. If we grow love, they claim it, if we lust for them, they claim it. If we grow a zygote, they claim it with their words. Praise it as something they call life. Name it precious. Say it is more godly than us. More sacred than a mother's love. More pure than a baby, a child, a girl, a woman. Any other living thing. Their justices, Danforth's all, call forth in judgment that we are vessels to grow there domestic supply of infants oh god of the goddamn fathers how can we love them as much as we want when all they want from us is everything yeah really
0: that's a great ending i think it really picks up to the end excellent poem thanks for sharing that dick and then let him let, let him know what you thought in the chat
12: um he'll be watching yeah, I, 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 w- I would be interested because this is a group that has for you know i trust um So, the Demi Sonnet for the Dead, Mm -hmm. um, I just loved the form. I just toyed around with it all week. And uh, um, this one actually I wrote right after uh, Rattlecast. So, and it basically was responding to the further discovery of mass graves. Mm -hmm. Um, So, um, in Ukraine, Demi Sonnet for the Dead, I am plain, I am pro plain pine box pro urn of ash, pro mortality and dust and bodies decaying into dirt, except when bulldozed into ditches. I am not pro ditches, not pro pits dug by victims, not pro pleading or pushing into crypts. The bearing of bodies should be done by hand, one sifted, fistful at a time, dirt mixed with tears, sometimes blood. Yeah, actually, that's a
0: great demi sonnet, and um, and isn't the form? I can see why Aaron sort of gets addicted to that form. It's
12: a form that that I may, I want to write more. Yeah, you just you you have to. I, I try I I tried writing a second part to this, a second demi sonnet that got specific. That's really hard to pack in anything more than just the mm-hmm. one. Dis- one distillation. So that's a great form. I yeah, like it a lot. Yeah,
0: it is. It challenges you to, to be, you know, not be wordy. <laughs> it's just, yes. is
12: nice. <laughs> hey, yeah. like poetry.
0: Yes. <laughs> so, well, thanks, thanks for sharing that, Dick.
12: Yeah, thanks. Yep,
0: take care. Bye. Okay, let's go to um let's go to I'm gonna make sure I um admit. Okay. I always forget to go back to the admit button. Okay. Let's go to um Let's go to Bev Wendell Atherstone.
13: Hi, Tim. How are hey. you today?
0: Good. How are you doing, Bev?
13: Yeah, great. Oh, I love Dick's poem. Oh, that was that was just perfect. Perfect. Um, <laughs> I see he's left. Yeah, a very very interesting session today. And like Dick, I wrote my demi sonnet last week, right after the program. Mm-hmm. It's uh it's a very fun, fun uh uh, form, and <clears throat> I was so upset. I watched a program where uh, hunters are shown in their in their hides, and they're uh, watching the animals, and then they then they kill the animals with a crossbow. And in this particular one, it was uh, killing a, a, um, a full grown um, male bear.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's hard to watch.
13: It was, it was very hard, especially after the hunter was uh, uh, commenting on the behaviors of the bear and, and you could see a great deal of empathy about the bear. And then, anyway, here's my poem. Okay. Taking a Bear. An outfitter TV ad features a hunter with his guide. Fascinated, I watched their preparations in disbelief. A modern crossbow. Assures absolute success. To take a vibrant life for a single trophy photo brings disbelief. Relishing his last relief, a black bear scratches, stretched tall on a tree. The hunter marvels at its huge size in disbelief. Baited bear, baited breath, trophy photo. I cry in
0: disbelief oh very interesting poem I'm almost combining a danny sonnet with a uh with a guzzle or something excellent thank you yeah the repetition is very cool thanks for sharing that thank you very much yep take care thanks okay let's go next to um ethne or, hi, Tim. hi how is it that i pronounced that again
14: oh don't don't
0: worry well it's... i want to get it right but I, I just have to lodge it in my head
14: it's Ethna.
0: Ethna, okay. Yeah. Just
14: well, imagine it's a an a at the end rather than an e. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, great. I, I'll I will um make a note, make a mental but note. But honestly,
14: it's no problem.
0: It's no problem. <laughs> um. So so, uh, what is it that you'd like to share?
14: Yeah. So um, I found out earlier today that it was Mother's Day in Ukraine, mm-hmm. and since I've come on the session today, I always now realize also also realize that it's Mother's Day in um US. So I had. Earlier I wrote a demi-sonnet about my mum. I had a lovely uh, day out with her when I last saw her in Ireland. So it's it's about that.
0: Very great. Thanks. Yeah, go ahead. I have it up um, on screen. Okay,
14: so it's called Unbowed at a National Trust Property. The daffodils are opening. There's no frost, no snow, no rain, so the weather allows a trip with mum. Double-barrelled wealth preserved in the house by the stream, shouts, look, but don't touch. Mom speaks louder and refuses all the
0: chairs. Oh, it's wonderful! I love that ending. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah,
14: thank
0: you. Excellent. Yeah, thanks, Ethna. Um, Carla again. Carla Schwartz included a poem um, and you know uh, audio of her reading the demi sonnet. So let me um, let me get that loaded up. Um, here we go. This is a uh, Carla Schwartz reading "Final Goodbye." Yeah, here we go. Final goodbye.
14: A Demi-Sonnet by Carla Schwartz at CB99videos I knew saying goodbye was for me, but thought saying goodbye was for him, though each labored breath, each thin whistle, threw reason out the door. Who was I to hold on? When death
0: had already won. Excellent. I love that. That was a Final Goodbye by Carla Schwartz. And that, that one, hold on, great, great near rhyme there. I really like that. Thanks for sharing that, Carla. Um, this is Ted Guevara's Demi Sonnet. And he, of course, he a lot of times he includes pictures. Um, this is actually a pair of Demi Sonnets, heavy and light. And um, he has a picture, there's a quote from Anne Frank in this picture. Um, How wonderful it is that nobody need wait a single moment before starting to improve the world. Uh, That's Anne Frank, a quote that he includes. And then for some reason, there's a backpack with a a wheelchair uh, racing type um, um, graphic on it for those that are just listening. And this is his um, heavy and light sonnets, demi-sonnets heavy and light, this is called. Get your groove back on, Dutch-German diarist. The web in your toes evolved no swim grace. The tongue of the world laps still at the creases of the four walls you've been in. Their aim is to harden the plaster more, so store more items in your survival kit. Fins will outshine the use of candles. And then the second part, I keep forgetting, I'm wearing a backpack. In the morning, there is or con- er, in the morning there is content in what I put in. But as the day progresses with its feather winds and small, whimsical disputes, the pack disowns me, says it's no part of me. Rough thread count shifting on my skin gives in to imagination, involuntarily. So there's a pair of demi-sonnets by Ted Guevara. Thanks, Ted, Ted, for sharing those. Let's see. We'll try Kimberly again. Hey, Kimberly, are you there? I think it's connected this time.
15: Yeah. yeah. Hey, Kimberly. Yeah, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good now that I' found the mute button <laughs>
0: <laughs> great so um so you have a this is birth that you'd like to share
15: yeah i um I wrote this during my internship year, which is usually a you know kind of busy year as a young doctor, and um this is about the first delivery that I helped with.
0: Very, very cool. Let's hear it. This is a birth. Go ahead. And I can get this up Mm, now. There it is. Go ahead. Okay.
15: Newborns escape the womb as monstrous human forces triangulate and funnel the smoothly muscled uterus with the squeezing force of a wrestling half Nelson. Screaming, crying, slippery, shiny, like a greased watermelon, warm and wiggling between my hands. I almost dropped a few, ruled no fumble on review. A momentary panic called birth.
0: Oh, excellent poem. Great, great recollection of that. Thanks for sharing that, Kimberly.
15: Thanks, Tim.
0: Yeah, always a pleasure. That was Kimberly McNeil with uh, Birth. And let me so I think um let me see I think nobody else is here I'll leave the just in case anybody wants to pop in I'll leave um oh that's still Kimberly okay I see so I'll leave it open in case if anybody wants to jump in and share a poem you still can um, Clayton Clark has one here there are three people who wanted me to read um, read these demi sonnets and here's Clayton Clark's demi sonnet and then Megan and I have both have a demi sonnet as well and um so we'll do that after we get to the other ones too. But this is proof of heaven provided by my mom. And this is Clayton Clark's Demi sonnet. Uh, proof of heaven provided by my mom in this room of dreams. She lies flanked by family. A child says, "Uh Oh, grandma is shedding her skin. Soon it is vellum. The slow March speeds. Her pupils burst. Ink blots bloom across blue irises In death. She leaves us a Rorschach test. Sly writer, she'd always wanted to be. Hey, great, great demi-sat. Thanks for sharing that, Clayton. Um, and let's uh, let's see. Um, let's see. Do we have anybody else who wanted to share? Okay, so let's go to just to wrap this show up. Let's go to uh, Megan and my prop poems. And uh, Megan's back, back on the wagon. Is that we decide to say it? She's back writing poems again, which is always nice. And uh, this is uh, Megan's first poem. So these are our demi-sonnets. Here's Little League, and this is what we're doing. We're kind of like a Little League family right now, like three times a week and, and more just privately, you know, me and my son practicing. We're just always playing baseball all of a sudden. Um, he just loves it now. And this is uh, Megan's Little League poem. So um, this is Little League. At seven, sometimes boys still call for their mothers when they get hurt. Some listen to their fathers who tell them to get up, rub some dirt on it. Some boys are lean with dreams, some wander and pick buttercups. When bat hits ball, they all look up. That is Megan's Demi Sonnet Little League. Excellent poem is always, in a happy Mother's Day to Megan as well. you're um, just one of the best mothers in the world, there's no doubt about that. Um, you know, I have great kids as evidence, so um, so thanks for being you and, and, and writing great poems all the time, too, and, and doing props for us as well. Um, just wonderful having Megan around all the time. And this is uh, my sonnet, and this let's see this is my demi sonnet. the hard problem of consciousness, who hasn't woken to the sound of the wind and wondered why the first light of morning is never caught by the net of leaves in the neighbor's juniper, sometimes it's spilled wine spread through a cocktail napkin, sometimes it's water always it leaks. the heartbeat of the sun is eleven years. Doesn't it tire of turning? I'd still rather be than be dust, but I'm learning. That is the hard problem of consciousness. And uh, the Psyku for this week is kind of what I, you know, I wrote it right after the psycho, So I, you can see, you know, you'll see what kind of mindset I was in just f- from writing this poem. Um, but this is the uh, the Psyku article. This is the news out of the Northwestern um, University of Medicine uh, or the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University, I should say. This is the uh, the article that caught my eye in science news this week. Um, a new tool to create uh, hearing cells lost in aging. And so uh, these researchers were able to find the the gene that governs whether um, a cell will become an inner or an outer ear sense cell, like a little little celia hair-like things, that... Um, that are inside our inner ear, mostly when people go deaf, uh, what happens is the uh, the outer cell um, die off and there's no way to replace them. You're born with however many you have at birth. And um, it's always been hard. They could grow cells, but they couldn't differentiate the cells between the inner and the outer little sense receptors. And so what these people do is they found the, um, the, the gene that governs that so they can turn it on or off and make the kind of cell they need. And so it could be a way to... Um, reverse hearing damage and repair that for the first time um, eventually once the, the technology is developed. So um, it's a wonderful discovery. And this is the Saiku. It made me think about my grandfather. And this is a Saiku for the week. Grandpa's silence, the sound of the wind giving up. Grandpa's silence, the sound of the wind giving up. That is the Psyku for this week, and that is uh, the show for the week. Now, next week's prompt is going to be right here. On the elevator, a stranger says something unexpected. That's next week's prompt. On the elevator, a stranger says something unexpected. You can make it a sound if you want. You can make any kind of poem you'd like, but that is the prompt. And uh, we'll be here with next week's guest, who is going to be uh, Mike White. And Mike White's another one of my favorite poets. He writes these small um, condensed little tight poems that I just love. Um, how to Make a Bird with Both Hands is one of his two books. I'm not even sure which one's the most recent. I just put up the one that I that I uh, recognize the most. I love that cover too. Um, but he's been a Rattle Poetry Prize finalist. We publish him a whole bunch of times. Always these really small, tight, amazing little poems that I don't know how he does it. I try to write poems like him and it's impossible to con- condense so much into um, into one poem like that. But that is Mike White, How to Make a Bird with Both Hands, Rattlecast number 144. Sunday, May 15th, the regular time, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you had a good show today. I know I had a wonderful time, um, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye.